0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Our Resources podcast. I'm your host, Kalen Brand. On our resources, we want to think about big ideas related to resources. How do we use them? And what type of people are needed to produce them? Where do they come from? How do they hear about mining? And as you're listening to this episode, as well as many future episodes of Our Resources with fascinating guests, you may find yourself asking the question, who inspired our resources? Who came up with the groundwork for this podcast? And our guest today, Jody Banna, is exactly that person. Jody is the program manager at the University of Arizona and has been a mentor for me personally for several years. As the program manager, she's leading change within mining education. She's helping pioneer a transdisciplinary school of mining and mineral resources, which aims to connect business students, psychology students, students from all across campus with mineral resources. And the outcome of this will be more competent students and a more sustainable future for mineral resource extraction. Now, interestingly, for someone who's now leading the way in terms of mining education, Jody has only spent about five years within the mining industry. In fact, she has worked in over 25 countries as a business analyst among very large companies such as AIG. And during this time, she's been able to gather what she calls a systems thinking analysis. And so what that means is that she's able to look at how organizations uh, work internally as a system and is able to diagnose issues and find solutions. This is something that we talk about in depth on the podcast and it's something I think every listener can gain from. And overall, I I think it's a really fun, really provocative, um, as well as really useful podcast, which I hope each and every listener can enjoy and also learn something from. So without much else to say, on with the episode. Jody Banna, welcome to the R Resources podcast. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, Kaylin. I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. Uh, so, to get us started on our very first episode, I wanted to ask you if, if you could consider yourself a professional, what would that be? And, and I guess uh, another question would be, do you consider yourself an expert at all? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And especially working in academia, that's something that has come up a lot. And in fact, it's interesting because in academia, it comes up every day. When I worked in industry and in financial services for 15 years, believe it or not, no one ever asked me, what school did you go to and what degree do you have? All anyone cared about is, what can you do for me? So this idea of expertise is, is an interesting one. And what I would say more than anything is I'm a jack of all trades. I've worn a lot of different hats. But there are certain things I find more most interesting. I know what I gravitate towards and what I have the most knowledge of. Uh, my degree, I have a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Arizona in sociology, And I never expected to have to get a job with that degree. I just thought it was interesting. I was just trying to set myself up to go to law school. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. You can do anything you want um, if you want to go to law school. But what I learned in my final year or my senior year at the university was I didn't want to go to law school. Um, And so I found myself in this now what position and trying to figure out how am I going to get a job with a degree in sociology and just a bachelor's at that. So all I did was just kind of open myself up to opportunity and the opportunity that presented itself fairly rapidly was to get into a field that's called business systems analyst or systems, um, a business analyst is a very interesting role, had to teach myself a lot of skills, but the nature of this job and I was specifically working with in the field of data warehouse consulting um, this person this role is literally dedicated to their job is requirements gathering. They will listen to the business user, and in my case, I've marketing. They'll understand their business problem, ask a lot of questions. It's a lot of active listening. Gather those needs, understand what problems they face, what are the problems that they're looking for help with. And then my role was literally to translate that, So take the full understanding of the problem and then translate it into a language that the software engineers understand. Believe it or not, that's actually a very, I mean, there's a lot of us out there who do that role and it's, a very, um, it's very common in software design, and, but it also, you can see it appear in design thinking where mm-hmm. that first step is empathy. That's what that's about. Um, but the disconnect between business people and the engineers was so bad, and the language barrier was so insurmountable that they would literally dedicate a translator to do this. Uh, and I learned a ton. And what I found was I really enjoyed learning or understanding both so sides what, what of the what was equation. the context
0: of this? What what industry?
1: So it didn't matter. My first client was Publishers Clearinghouse. I you know so yes. <laughs> <laughs> Marketing—they run steep stakes, but their business is selling magazines. And so I was sitting in their, you know, their location in New York, um, understanding what did they need, their what kind of software solution did they need in order to sell more stuff. Um, I went from that into financial services, largely insurance. The same problem. You wear the same hat. You play the same role as a business analyst. Your job is to understand the business problem and their challenges, and then translate that over into the technical people, the engineers that ultimately build a solution. And you work together to design from there. So
0: So to say this back to you, so you basically you you're looking for patterns with different groups of people. You're trying to identify what they need, what their problems are, and then put that into a language that engineers, and other technical people can digest and, and create solutions for, correct?
1: It's t- yeah, and that's accurate. And it's amazing. You can't, you can't design a solution if you don't understand what the problem yeah. is. So my job was to really understand what the problem was and then help other people under- translate into a language others could understand so that they could design an appropriate solution. Um, And that role was one that stuck with me is how do you work with people to understand a problem, gather the information Mm -hmm. that you need in order to design an informed solution?
0: How I'm curious about how you're able to differentiate a true problem from something that could be um, temporary or, or not really critical. Like how how are you finding what is the root issue for these issues, yeah,
1: root cause. Um, it's interesting when you. I mean, that's that's a, another sort of a, a multi-step process. Um, you're trying to understand what's what's gone wrong, and then it's tracking it back to what are the possible causes of this, and then setting up tests to evaluate where to identify where where things are actually breaking down. I mean, step by step by step. So if you're talking in um, the way you approach this is very different with different types of problems. Um, And I feel like I've done everything from engineering operational process to engineering, again, you know, um, uh, some kind of um, an educational outreach program. So the, the the nature of those problems is very, very different. But it starts with the same discovery process. You're trying to gather as much information as you can to better understand a problem and start pinpointing the root cause. I would say, give you an example, because you can do this with with data mining data that's in a database, or you can go out and do social research. Those are two very different approaches. So when you're trying to understand uh, an operational error, you're probably going to data mine a lot of operational data. When you're trying to understand a
0: social problem, you're going to go out and you're going to do social research so and talk to people. expand on that differentiation because I, I think a lot of our listeners will be very familiar with doing quantitative information gathering and putting that into the context of this qualitative research, which you know is is a lot more conversational, a lot more empathetic, I think is something that, I know I personally struggle with understanding how, how can you verify that? Like, what are the steps that you can do to make sure that is legitimate, accurate information?
1: Well, it starts with understanding or choosing who are you going to conduct your interviews with. So I think a lot of people understand this as stakeholder mapping or understanding who's in, who's touched by the problem. We're the parties that are in and around the problem and identifying what kind of people you need to talk to so who's just really being selective and then how many of them do you need to talk to and so for example um, typically if i approach a social problem i'm probably going to talk to a small group of people to get a hypothesis going your yeah, hypothesis test and so you'll select a small group of people and we did this roughly for example we did this when we were trying to design um the new School of Mining and Mineral Resources. We started with, we know that there's a problem out there and we want to understand where to focus our time. What is the real problem and and what kind of solution is going to be meaningful here? So a group of five people say, here's what we think this is. And it was a really smart group of five people that gave us the hypothesis to go out and test. Then we have to go out and get a sample and do more in-depth interviews, like hour-longs, structured interviews with representative people from our stakeholder map. So we're trying to get, again, people from different parts of this industry, different commodities, different size of organization, different parts of the world, different parts within that business to get a better read on, okay, so if I ask them the same five questions, Mm -hmm. what answers do I get? And then I'm going to look for patterns in their responses. Which kinds of phrases rise to the top? If I ask them to say what are the top three challenges your business is facing, what top three things do they say? Mm-hmm. Are they consistent across responders, or do they vary greatly? That's one way to do it. Looking for what are these? What are the common pain points? Anytime you're trying to design a better better mousetrap, um, you're talking to people. You're looking what, for what pain do you mean points. by pain points? And you're going. So here's things like, I'll give you an example of what came out in interviews in terms of, you know, looking for a way to design a better um, educational, how do you better prepare talent for the mining and minerals industry? Pain points, very, very common. Uh, people from different disciplines can't work together. This is preventing us from making progress. Or uh, students need better communication skills. They you know, they're unable to explain their position to, you know, they can't communicate with others about um, defending their solution design or the 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 research or whatever it is they've done they're not able to communicate effectively these are really big problems pain points
0: okay yeah so so you're you're already one step ahead of me with going to the school monumental resources and and doing your research but before we go into the student research that went into that project i want to continue drilling down on this topic of, of how you're constructing these interviews and how you're going about this i know there's One big problem within uh, statistics in finding your your representative sample is that you oftentimes don't know what the population statistics look like. And so I'm curious, when when you're finding these subsamples that you're interviewing and looking at, how how are you able to know that you're actually getting a representative sample of the whole population?
1: Well, so it depends when you're... When you approach qualitative, it's different from quant. Quant is always about numeric. What's about statistical validity? And you're gonna definitely, if you, I'd be surprised, um, you didn't have insight, some insight into your target universe demographics because that is the first QC point, is making sure that if you have a quantitative sample, that the profile of your sample is representative of your population. So, for example, when we're studying students at the University of Arizona, we match up our sample demographics to the university fact book age, gender, uh, ethnicity, all those important demographic points when you're doing qualitative, you're never going to have such a large sample. So you're really just going to choose, again, you're going to do, um, figure out where you need your input from and make sure you've got those bases covered. So for example, I don't want in my industry interviews, I don't just want to talk to the people in mine planning. If what I'm trying to do is understand the entirety of the challenges facing the mining industry, I need to talk to people in uh, in the environmental division, in corporate social responsibility, in business development, in the geos, you know, in exploration mm-hmm. and geology, um, you need you need to talk to everybody. You've got to understand if you want to understand the whole uh, totality of the impacts or so the challenges that are facing the industry. Then you need to talk to some somebody that's representative of each of those challenges. If you're concerned about being providing a solution that's relevant globally, then you need to talk to people in different geographies. If we had a target geography, then we focused on that. So, there's just understanding whose voice do I have to have and making sure I have it. And then that sort of sanity check can be obtained by checking outside sources of information. So, we're not the only people doing this uh-huh. type of research. Then you have other groups like Minerals Council Australia, who's out there commissioning studies, and Arnston Young was helping them. And they had lots of relevant points that I could check our findings against. There's always going to be, in my experience, some way to find another source of information to validate your findings against, at least at some level. If there, if you can't find that, that's a, that's a a
0: real problem. (laughs) That's a red flag. You don't want to be in that
1: shit. That is a problem because you, yeah. um, And it is, it's just a standard checkpoint. You really do have to have those quality assurance procedures in place to know that what you've done is valid. And if for nothing else, I mean, there's a validity of your findings, but then there's everyone who will challenge you on the validity of your findings. You have to be able to justify your findings. And some audiences are very skeptical when your findings do not align with what they expected to see. Interesting.
0: Can can you expand on on what you mean by that? In my mind, I'm envisioning, for example, you you went out, you sampled, and you talked to a variety of workers from various disciplines. Um, And you, like you said, you diagnosed the problem came back to them and said, you know, here are the three or four top things that, that we identified as common across this system. Is it is it that those four things aren't aligning perfectly with what they personally feel like is the issue? Or am I missing something?
1: No, if if what you come back with to say these are the top four issues and it does not match what someone expected to hear, they'll immediately okay. challenge your findings. If any one of those doesn't Uh, One of the most controversial things that we did was set out to understand student perception around mining. Because when I first joined mining, and I was new to it, very new, um, what I was told was... Oh, well, we just can't recruit anybody to mining because everyone thinks it's terrible. It's ruining the planet. It's just an evil industry. It's terrible, terrible perception, very negative. That is the that is to, to and I won't quote them, but to your point, that is the root cause of the problem okay. is that I was hearing it was that negative perception was the root cause of the problem. And I heard that from so many different people, but it, what i i was questioned that because in doing social research on this type of audience before I many university mm-hmm. students in my experience 18 19 20 year olds are very unlikely to hold such a strong opinion on something that is so far removed from their daily that's a really good life.
0: observation yeah
1: So and and I just didn't believe I thought you know, I understand this feeling that uh, I understand why people think that's the root cause of the problem. But I just didn't believe it. Um, And so we set out to test it because if you're going to design a program to attract talent to this industry, you must know what the problem is. Is it because they hate us? Because that's a very different problem from, well, they don't know. They don't know what we are. Those are two really, really different things. And if you're trying to attract people to the industry, assuming assuming that the obstacle you must overcome is that they that you're you're despised somehow, your approach is gonna, you know, that's not really the problem, your approach is okay. gonna be way off.
0: So so like I said, you you're already jumping where we want to go. So Into the application of how you're using this, you mentioned that we're doing, or you did many surveys, student surveys, trying to understand how students perceive mining. Yeah, go ahead.
1: There is a consistent, feels like, um, a consistent perception among certain pockets of the mining mining community um, that have this, the, the way they would describe the other, Yes, it's fairly consistent. Uh, And their fear of what the other people think of them is is fairly consistent, is that they think people outside of my first of all, first mistake, they think people outside of mining actually think about mining. And they don't. It's the last thing on anybody's mind. And then if you ask people outside of mining to start talking about it, they struggle. They have no opinion at all. So your this perception of it's a persecution it feels like a persecution complex in some way, shape, or form because of decades and decades of struggle. I mean, the industry has a long history and and when people are against it, obviously they're very vocal. But I think it's like this, you know, you gotta be reminded of what percentage of the population is that. It's very, very small. It's very, very small. Can be very vocal, can be very impactful where mining is happening, but it's really very small. And the biggest problem really that mining is facing is it's so taken for granted and it's really not seen. So yes, there's this perception of here's what the people inside of mining believe the people outside of mining think of mining. And what I am finding with the research is, and and in this research I do in conjunction with um, faculty from the mining engineering department is no students think very little about mining. They have almost no, no opinion. They have very weak opinions where they have them Um, They were very willing to engage. They're very positive on economic impact. I was surprised by that. They do think that mining harms the environment, but students, and that was like half of students said, yeah, probably harms the environment. The students who said yes, they thought it might harm the environment were more interested in careers in mining. Just a little. But the point is, look, that's not your problem. (laughs) Negative perception, when we went step by step by step by step and we evaluate their perception, it's really neutral. They know very little about mining. The lack of knowledge is causing a problem for interest. Students do not get interested in things Mm -hmm. they don't know about. When they know a little more about it, they find it interesting. And it is some of these challenges about mining, like environmental impacts, that actually make it. Yeah,
0: so you, you talked about two findings that I want to focus in on. First, you, you said that you thought it was surprising that students were interested in the economic impacts of mining.
1: Well, they, were, they were aware, and they had a very positive response to economic impact. Okay. Yes.
0: How, how aware were they, I guess? Like, what was the... What was the interest or, or knowledge of the economic impacts in terms of jobs, taxes?
1: Um. So, so jobs. So simple question, because we're talking to 18, 19 year olds. Uh, my, the house, star, you know, do you agree with this statement? Mining provides jobs. 80 plus to 90 percent said, yep, I agree with that statement. <laughs> um I mean, that's that's like, yep, we all know that it's got jobs. So that's really, really high awareness. Believe it or not, mining is necessary was also at 80%. I mean, the findings were really surprising on so many fronts. Are mineral resources necessary? Surprisingly, many people, more than three quarters of students said, yep, mineral resources are really important to my daily life. When you ask them what they use them in, tablets, personal like personal technology is the, the bit, is one of the top responses. Second, makeup. And water, uh. mineral water, sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, how much do they really understand about this stuff? Not a whole lot. It would really help if their comprehension was a little better about how we use mineral resources because would you go, you know, how much damage would you be willing to do to the environment yeah. to get makeup? Not at, yeah. Um, but still, still their top of mind perception was that we need these things and mining is necessary. So we took a composite of the answers to many questions. Okay,
0: so so students generally have a neutral perception on
1: It's neutral, which is definitely not helpful when you're trying to recruit. You want them to have some some positive, some negative. You got to have some a feeling about it because if you're what I call agnostic, you're just stuck in the middle and unlikely to get involved. We also ask questions about: Is it you know? Is it modern? Is it responsible? Literally the answer choice most chosen was it's as responsible as other industries or yeah, it's about as modern as other industries.
0: I wonder though, if I don't, I don't want to put my own inside of mining perceptions on, on the survey results, but I, I have two kind of questions that I want to dive into here. Um, the, the first being I'm wondering how much just the general influence of having young 18, 19-year-olds answer these types of questions had on the survey. So, so for example, you just brought up the example of um, industry responsibility. You know, I think that a lot of 18, 19-year-olds and kind of the Gen Z and that generation are unlikely to think that any industry might be positive. And so that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing for mining. It just means that they're equally bad as everybody else.
1: Yeah. That's right. So part of what we're trying to gauge in the survey is where do we stand competitively, uh-huh. right? Is this hurting us from a competitive perspective? So if they see mining as less responsible, that might impact your compa- the mining's competitiveness with other industries. If they see it as old fashioned and outdated, it may affect competitiveness. I would never say that that response down the middle is positive or negative. It's neutral. <laughs> it's neutral. It doesn't help or hurt. But it's definitely not the, like, you can't say that students think mining is irresponsible because that's not what they okay. said. It's just as, it's unfortunately, you know, you're saying, you're trying to gauge yourself against those other industries. Like you said, how many industries are responsible? Believe me, not many. Yeah. I will agree with that statement. Okay.
0: And then my, my second question on there is, do we have any idea how, how this compares to the broader populace? So obviously 18, like we're, we're targeting 18, 19 year olds, um, for this specific purpose of, of diagnosing the problem and, and addressing the problem of why they aren't enrolling in, in mining engineering and other mining mineral resources related courses. Um, but is there any work that's been done on, on how this applies to the broader populace?
1: So first of all, the study that we did was completely limited to University of Arizona students. So not only can I not comment on the general population, I can't comment on university students in general. But what I can tell you are two things. Um, having done this kind of research where I have done it on campus, I've done it on camp, off campus, different industry, um, young people tend to have less extreme opinions about extreme. most things. Yes. It's very hard to find something they get real excited about. And they get to, they get really excited about different things. So when you find something that really matters to young people, okay, um, that one might have an extreme influence. But like I said, you're very unlikely to get a strong response to something that they feel is so removed from their daily lives. Those topics are few and far between. Um, what I would say about general population um, is, and I know you're looking at me and you just don't believe it, but uh, younger people, t- your opinions get more fixed and more, you you get more decisive as you get older. And other, it's very hard to change p- people's opinions later in life. So this young sweet spy is where everyone is trying to get in and influence people's opinions and shape their ideas. And it is the best time to do it. This, gr- this age group is most receptive to information. They tend to be more curious and they'll listen. Um, More openly, as people get further down or just you know further along in life, ah, (laughs) they're less open to ideas and more fixed in their opinion. No, that's
0: I I could see the the second part for sure that you know, young people are like sponges, they kind of soak up information, soak up ideas. Um, but I always imagined that that also included more extreme or or harder stances on ideas. Like, I I think, like, uh, Greta Thunberg, for example, like.
1: Yeah, Good example. She's an a gotcha. Okay.
0: So take, taking this back to the student survey and, and getting their perceptions of. of...
1: To, my, to your second point, because you asked me a two part oh. question and I have two parts of that response. General population. We haven't done that kind mm-hmm. of research, Kaylin, but mining operations often do when they want to understand the community that they're about to go into. Mm-hmm they will often engage in this type of research and they've shared some of their findings with me. Um, and so that can, I that would reinforce um, the, this at least, you know, in certain in certain geographic areas. And this would be more us based um, that most of the, most of the population does not have a strong yeah. opinion.
0: I can see that yeah. I, mining as, as we know is, pretty rural and desolate in a lot of times and so that that makes sense to me um yeah so i did i have another question though about about young people so <laughs> so if we soak up all this information and, and make decisions uh, fairly rapidly as you've described your or mendable i think that's a good way to put it <laughs> stay how
1: rapid.
0: about how about the conclusion <laughs> that we're ductile Um, yeah, what, malleable. malleable Duxo. No.
1: Uh, in in my experience, I find students more yes. Uh, it's this is this is just my experience. This is not something that I actually studied, but I do I do find students in many scenarios to be the um, you can actually shape perceptions and okay. change ideas. And that can be, be very difficult. Wait,
0: so wait. I'm curious about how then you're able to or, or how you put this information into action in terms of how do you ensure that a student gets interested in, in mineral resources and how they don't become distracted by something else? Because if, if they're equally interested in mineral resources, what's what's to say yes. they don't go somewhere else?
1: That's a very, very good question because you're competing for attention all the time and there is so much to choose from. What am I interested in today? The other thing I would mention about public opinion before we forget about this is the public is fickle, right? Their opinion changes. So you've got that dynamic going and now students, yes, they're interested in one thing one day, but then something, you know, some new interesting dynamic thing comes along. And this is at a point in time when they're interested in exploring lots of different things. So holding attention is really hard. This is not a challenge that's unique to mining and minerals. We're all facing this. But the first step is to put the subject in front of them. They have to see it. How do you get the topic in front of them, and how do you present it in a way that makes it appear? Two things I think are important: Is it how do you communicate the fact that this is an important topic and it is interesting? Those are key elements in, in getting someone to pay attention to you in the first
0: place. Interesting. Yeah. So those are what you call those both really fundamental principles for anybody or any industry who's trying to get their message across.
1: Um, gotta Yes, you, you have to get someone's attention. And what we found from the student research and understanding how student, students choose to study, like choose a major, Interest is key. They just have to be interested in it. Okay, so what do they find interesting? How are you going to make it interesting? And, and what we have found effective, but I, I can only say this from, from a from sort of synthesis of information, is that intersection between this is important and this is interesting. Is is something that matters. We have a more we have a competitive advantage if we're tackling it from that perspective. Then this is interesting, but not important, right? So back. to, oh, I don't want to get in trouble with anybody. Um, back to my original job, like selling magazines, for example, or entering sweepstakes. It's kind of hard to get super motivated and passionate around that. People do it, but. Wow, was it hard to maintain enthusiasm for something like that. And for young people, we would, that whole element of, yeah, this is important, okay. can be helpful. It's not appealing to everyone. It's only appealing to a segment of the population. But we have a better competitive advantage if you're hitting both important and this is interesting. Now, what makes it interesting? And I think... You know, what we do see is you're more likely to get a student's interest if they can see the, the many different facets facets or options or challenges associated with mining than if you focus on just one thing. Like, here's some latest technology. That's a little bit more limited in its appeal. Um, it's good, but it would be better to demonstrate how, how maybe the latest technology is helping you with environmental performance and operational efficiencies because both of these things are so important. Okay.
0: okay, good. No, that, that makes sense to me. And my last question on this is the phrase that all press, even bad press, is good press in the sense that everyone can find even negative information interesting. I'm wondering if this is something you have considered in this research and if, if any of your findings had a relationship to the level of interest expressed by students, because I, I can imagine that students, you know, they as you just said, they, they want to find something that's important and it's, it's equal to say something's equally um, important because it's bad or equally important because it's good.
1: Well, and so students wanting to get involved to prevent the next environment, mining related environmental disaster, that's a possibility. But what I cannot say is I have no information to support um, a statement one way or the other, and I'll tell you why. Because just think of the biggest, let's just say, disasters that have occurred in the last couple of years. I uh, take the, the tailings dam failure in Brazil, and then take, say, something like Jukon um in Australia. I don't know how many students knew that happened, either one of those.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Did they pick that up in the newsfeed? Probably not. So the kinds of – we're not even making the news. Even when bad things happen, you're not on the – it's not on a student's radar. I had very – I received – Almost no questions about those topics and very little discussion. I don't know. I would be curious about your own feedback on that because I found awareness of those big issues to be quite
0: low. I mean, to me, you just mentioned asking my input. That's to me. That's the big reason I got into mining um, was because um, with my background, I grew up in, in Colorado and we had a lot of abandoned mines and I was, I was very aware of the impacts of acid mine drainage in, in high school. Um, this was another key driver for me being interested in mining, um, was when there was the the dam leakage in Silverton and it caused the pollution of the Animas river. Yeah. I'm sure. Some people remember that for a few weeks through months, the Animas river was bright orange with acid mine drainage. Um, And so that that was definitely, for me, it was a major driver to go into the mining industry. And that's that's one of the big reasons I ask.
1: Yeah. So you were personally, your local, your world was impacted, personally impacted. You could see it, touch it, feel it, smell it, whatever it was. You personally saw it. When you talk about the rest of the population at large, most people are not experiencing personally anything to do with mining. And it doesn't make the national or global – well, it makes – outside the United States, people probably see more about it. Inside the United States, news is very U.S.-centric. So, you know, we're really not even seeing a lot of this stuff. But what is it that young people are seeing in their news feed, as I said? Like, what are they following? And are they going to see this type of stuff or not? I don't even know if they know this stuff happens. They're certainly not talking about it. (laughs)
0: okay. Okay. Well, that's that's really interesting. So, to wrap up on this this discussion here. So, you with all these student surveys, you found that students age 18-19 at the University of Arizona feel pretty neutral about mining.
1: I would say 18-19-2021 20, we even talked to master's students, but okay. our sample did few young.
0: <laughs> so, I, I have a few questions on this. So, first I want to ask, where where did you learn this or was it through experience or was there a book that you could recommend that people read and just this clicks? Or
1: No, um, I learned by doing, unfortunately. That means a lot of trial and error. And what I found was in the role where I started, let's just say this business systems analyst and I'm trying to integrate data you know, systems and people and process, that was a common theme. I kept seeing where, okay, I'm applying these skills in order to like sell people more stuff. But now we're being threatened. Um, you know, we're trying to res- respond to a, a, a regulatory audit. And if we can't ensure that, the, you know, uh, someone is getting a very critical document within seven days of signing a contract, then we lose our license. Well, how do you figure out why an unacceptable percentage of people aren't receiving some important document in the right amount of time? That's the kind of question you'd be asked, right? And so in terms of studying that problem, I was going to have to gather data from all across the organization, including walking into the mailroom to understand what mail got returned that week. I mean, it literally is everything soup to nuts. you You just try to understand, all right, how am I going to diagnose this problem? But it required gathering all of, we had to know what data do we need in order to diagnose the problem? How can we get it? And what are we going to do with it? And once we figured out where the problem was, now how do you fix it? And that required integrating processes across five or six different departments that have never worked wow. together before. Okay. And if you integrate the process, that means now you have people working together that have never worked okay. together before. And
0: I'm sure that can have imaginable pretty- other positive effects in, in terms of having different disciplines, different people who just don't know that they exist talk to each other. Is that something that is also common?
1: It was it an was, um, extremely positive byproduct of fixing a very important problem. But believe it or not, fixing something that has, my core job was supposed to be customer-centric marketing. And here I am trying to solve this. Why aren't people getting their, their contract in the mail in time? How do you end up doing that? I saw, first of all, I was the only person who put their hand up to say, I think I know how to fix this. That gets you a lot of brownie points. And then once you've done that, now I'm working with all these different departments who are looking to me to solve their problem for them. And if I'm successful, now I have new friends. So now I have people in different departments who are willing to work with me to accomplish some objectives that maybe were central to other objectives. Like, again, I have to unfortunately got measured by how much stuff do we sell? That's what you do in marketing. We were able to solve many other important problems using that model of working across Boundaries, working together, introducing people from different... as you said, now these people are working together for the very first time. So it improves so many things when you start working across boundaries, take down the silos, work together to solve a problem. Um, and and everybody for the first time is meeting people in other departments. And that's not mm-hmm. a bad thing.
0: I want to ask why, why you think it has these positive effects. Um, I feel like on the surface, it can seem rather obvious, but really diving deep into why meeting new people from different disciplines could be so influential.
1: So this is, this is backed by science, because the other thing, I mean, some of the other work that I'd have to do within that role was the employee engagement survey. So, Gallup has a lot of science behind how they design these things, and we would impl- we implemented Gallup's uh, methodology to Im- to measure employee satisfaction and engagement and so on and We did find through doing that that employees felt more job satisfaction when they understood where they fit in the big picture you know where how am I contributing to the overall process because no one wants to feel like a cog in the wheel or a brick in the wall. <laughs> they want to understand how what they do is affecting the is that whole system's approach. How, how, where is my, what is my contribution worth and how do I make a difference? And you don't know that if all you see is your little piece. Uh,
0: so is this, is this what org charts are meant to solve? <laughs>
1: um, I don't know that org charts do not solve them. <laughs> uh, what does, what is effective is um, I think when you bring people together to solve a problem uh, you, it, it can be very effective in achieving a lot of different results. But it, it, it's that whole interdisciplinary, you know, just a very different approach to to just getting people to work together to to accomplish something that they think is important. There's a sense of satisfaction and reward do that. Well,
0: I, I don't want to only agree because I, I think that there are arguments against it. And I'm curious your thoughts on some of these arguments. So, For example, like I can see it being rational and reasonable to say that we already have a solution to a certain problem, and that continuing to do it one way is is the best way to go about it. You know that there's basically it's that fear of of risking failure by trying something new, and why isn't that more important or more significant than bringing new people together?
1: Oh, so we have something working. Don't break it. Um, if it ain't broken down, yeah, yeah. basically, like I,
0: I, I can imagine. So you just said that, you know, bringing interdisciplinary groups together is going to cultivate a new way of thinking about a problem. But I, I mean, I could see other people going about and saying that we have a try and true method. Um, you know, we have these five steps, for example, and we should just apply them to, to every scenario. And and really at the base of it, it turns into more of a a deterministic versus kind of a flexible argument. You know, what's the argument against saying that we have a determined path to solve whatever problems put in front of us? Why, Why do we need this interdisciplinary newness?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. A lot of the time when interdisciplinary teams had to come together to solve a problem in with what I was working on, it was because of a crisis, crisis forces innovation, right? So you're coming together because there is a problem in front of your face that has to be dealt with. And there isn't an existing solution because whatever you were doing just failed. Right. So a lot of people wait for failure. I, I can't endorse that methodology, but what I can say is take advantage of failure because it's an excellent opportunity for innovation. It, it really forces people out of their comfort zone. And then if you have someone who's, you know, you, you got an idea, um, people will that's where leadership is really, really critical in getting people to try something new. Now, what you're talking about maybe is why should we explore changing something if what we're
0: doing is fine and it's not yeah, broken? Yeah, I can I can see someone arguing that too. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah,
1: I mean, usually there's something driving the need. There's a real business driver for doing something different. People... Maybe you know in academia you might be off testing ideas that no one said they needed. I don't know. I think we're accused of doing that all the time. Um, but in the in in business, you're typically you've got a business reason for whatever it is that if you're trying to solve a problem, you pulled a team together, um, you saw an opportunity that you think is critical and want to explore, and you got the backing to do it, or something is broken and okay. needs to be fixed. Getting, getting support for exploring a new idea or an opportunity yeah. is a lot of work.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and I used to spend a lot of time on business cases and trying to help people justify change. It's it's a lot of work. I had more. Um, I got a lot more done when there was no choice but to fix something because it was, you know, you, you don't, but again, I just they can't advocate for waiting for something to happen.
0: What, what if instead, though, there is a way, I guess, is there a way to propose a change as, as a as a failure of the current system so so what i mean by that is like for example if um, somebody does want to change a system change how things are done is it is the best way for them to gain that support to frame it in the sense that we have a broken system and, and here's a solution or what's your recommendation there
1: well, you have to put some kind of framing around it. It's either, you know, I think we can do this faster. I think we can do this cheaper. Uh, I see you know, there's just, you see something in the process that isn't working as well as it could. If it's going to fail, that's a, that's, that's a different problem. If it's just not as good as it could be, then you're proposing an improvement. If you're suggesting that there is a potential failure, that's a very different suggestion then you need to be somehow substantiating why you think there's a okay. potential
0: failure in the no, future. That, that makes sense to me. Um, and then on that note.
1: I would add, Kaylin, to that one. That is one of the most important in terms of risk management, understanding what cannot fail. and I mean, understanding if this fails, and there's that's a whole risk evaluation matrix, like, what is the consequence of this not failing? Mm -hmm. Like how severe is it? What is the likelihood of this process failing? How like, you know, what's the likelihood it's going to fail. There's all kinds of tools in place for such assessments, but, um, if some, that's, that's just basic risk management methodology. That's
0: that's really interesting. That's not something that I feel like at least in, in my engineering education that we've gone over, although we deal with risk quite often. Um,
1: well, that is, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is a very, very useful framework for people to understand.
0: I mean, that's that's how I like to think about things. I like to think about things in a, a probabilistic manner in terms of um, events occurring and particularly with potential failures. Um, but I did want to ask, I, I don't want to be too mining centric, but I wanted to ask your opinion on how the mining industry interprets this whole idea of exploration, because it's always been really interesting to me that mining is based on a very high risk situation where, you know, for example, you're, you're drilling some drill holes and you have various small indicators of potentially or existing. And then you go and invest billions of dollars potentially on this scarce data. But then once the operation started, I feel like it's highly, highly, highly risk averse. And there's a, kind of a contradiction or there's two there's a dichotomy of of approaches. And so I'm really curious about your your thoughts on that because it feels like it's two totally different cultures.
1: I see what you mean. Um, wow, because the cost of failure yeah. is so high. Right. So once you're in operation. Any disruption is costly, right? or any accident could be fatal, or the consequence, the potential consequences are so high. People are, yes, there's, um, there's definitely a risk aversion factor there. Um, I think also, though, if you're going to implement some change, again, there's got to be a driver for it and a way to test it. And the potential upside has got to be pretty significant in order to take the time, energy, attention, and possible risk of testing that change. So how do you test those changes? Because every, my, every day out of mine, you have daily yeah, production yeah. targets, right? Yeah. So, so even in something as simple as you know in financial services, I found, I'm talking to people. I've got 4,000 people out there selling stuff. They have daily sales targets. They're so busy meeting those targets. They don't mm-hmm. have time to think about how they could do things better. A lot of it is luxury of time. You are talking, and I, I'm not questioning the risk aversion thing. It's very, very real. But in order to frame up a test properly, that is something most people in operations really don't have the luxury of time to do. Um, I was in a very fortunate position within my role that I was the, like, the person with the time to think. I had a team of thinkers, <laughs> analysts, and we had the time to think about how they could do things better. And we had the time to design the tests for them. We even sometimes staffed that testing because they just couldn't do it. They didn't have the time or the okay. bandwidth.
0: That's all very interesting. So, so one last question on mining, and then I kind of want to go to closing comments. Um, do you think that this type of dichotomy of, of how different disciplines are, are perceiving the mining process in terms of geologists versus engineers in particular, do you think that could be one of the reasons that there's such a classical boundary between these two disciplines?
1: Um, a couple of things there. I think that there is generally a lack of understanding of what each different discipline is doing, or even sometimes the different parts of the business that's my understanding from from some people who run courses that actually are are designed to help these different groups communicate better is what they find is they have very little understanding of what the other party is doing or what any other party in the mine uh, in a company is, in my mm-hmm. company is doing and so that leads to problems they can't talk to each other um it's understanding and appreciating the value that those different groups bring. But I would also say now having worked within, at least from the academic side, I am so just kind of awestruck at the difference between scientists and engineers and the challenges in communications and they're just their whole mm-hmm. style. Um, so hard to bring those groups together to find common ground and and common language. It's, it's like they speak different dialects of the same language, but really diff, di- different enough that they can't understand each other. Uh, so there's fundamental, yeah. yeah, there's just fundamental communications and appreciation. And, and they're just like different, their whole DNA is different. They're just wired differently. So the extra effort required to help them understand each other, it's, it's worth it. I think, again, I go back to start early. Because the younger people are learning to I appreciate you're, those you're different definitely challenges
0: You're preaching to the converted in terms of
1: in talking the- to
0: scientists and engineers. I I, think about that quite often. <laughs> um, but I also, I wanted to ask, I know we're coming to a close. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, I wanted to ask your advice for young people who, who want to make themselves indispensable within their organization. Like where can they go to learn some of these skills um, to be able to communicate better, to be able to have both those technical competencies that you mentioned, but also be able to work with a team? Like what, what should be on their agenda?
1: You know, this is going to sound so cliche, but, and you, you we've heard it all before, but when I was applying for scholarships and stuff like that, when I was in university, like, oh, why does everybody want me to be in a club? Um, why does everybody, you know, why do I need to have these certain experiences? All this stuff we've heard is so important. Builds, there are certain skills that they are designed, these experiences are designed to build, and they, they do result in more successful people. And universities want to give scholarships and attract students who are going to be successful in life. It looks, yeah. makes them look good. So when you're looking at how do you win scholarships and how do you get awards, look at some of the things they're asking you to do. They want you to, again, extracurricular activities are important. Participate. Put yourself in an experience in a club where you're getting some leadership experience. Participate in things outside of your discipline. Take classes outside of your particular discipline. Expose yourself to different types of people. Maybe volunteer in something. Definitely. Internships are really important because that's real world mm-hmm. experience, but choose because uh, some people, some internships, some corporates will yeah. waste your okay. time. Uh,
0: well, what about those yeah. that aren't uh, students have already graduated?
1: Oh, uh, again. So I think associations really, you're, you're trying to figure out like what, what situations are you trying to put yourself in? So if you're in a workplace, volunteer to be on some kind of interdisciplinary uh-huh. committee right? There are committees that, that cross boundaries. Um, and so maybe you just want to, you could do it in the workplace. You can do it in an industry association. You could do it with someone like YMP. You can do it with someone like SME, with women in mining. But there's a real genuine benefit to getting involved in things outside yeah. of your job. Um, you could do, if it's communication skills that you want, you could do something totally unrelated you can join Toastmasters. You can put yourself in a situation where you're regularly present. go present to high school students, do something. But you, you have to stretch yourself a little bit, but thinking about what is it that you need to do? How can you improve your own communication skills and your ability to work in teams? And if there isn't an mm-hmm. opportunity at work, find an opportunity outside of
0: it. Awesome. Uh, so my, my last question for you is what, what well, has you really excited for the future now this could be literally about anything um but what's what's the next <laughs> big thing in your opinion
1: um okay well let's keep keep it keep it professional like you about my hobbies um I I am I am really excited about it. I I chose to move into natural resources from financial services because that wasn't terribly fulfilling. I really love working with young people besides the fact that, you know, that just that that I see so much opportunity here. They're just way more fun. Uh, But I do really like working on how do you prepare the next generation of talent to make a positive impact in some way, shape or form? And I I think that's so important. I also feel very strongly about this because of my own personal, painful, professional navigation of trying to get from, oh my gosh, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology to how am I going to make this into a career? And all the mistakes I had to make along the way and just not understanding what I, you know, just help or something. So I feel like getting in early, uh, working with young people and a little bit of advice and mentorship can go a long way to making them Setting them up for a happier, more yeah, just just being happy and enjoying what they do in life. Oh, by the way, communication skills aren't just important at work. They'll genuinely impact your happiness outside of work. So will being able to work with people who have different perspectives. These are just good investments. Uh, but I am really excited to work with young people on something I think is so important and 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 I happen to just feel very strongly about social and environmental impacts that that different industries have. Mining is just one of them. Um, and I also just feel like what a great opportunity to get in front of, of people about topics that matter or should matter to a lot of us. Mm-hmm. As as our you know population growth expands and so many billions of people, A being added to the population and B being lifted out of poverty and adding to the base of consumers on this planet is just really learning to make smarter choices about what we do with the limited natural resources that we have. Uh, and not abusing them um you know we all kind of especially in the united states this is a very in general it, it's a very wealthy country and so everything seems so available and it, it does not feel we i don't think we always feel the cost or impact of our own personal footprint like the choices that we make and the things that we buy and things we use and we can be a little bit wasteful sometimes Um, You all see a lot of news about plastic straws, single-use plastic. Wow, we go through a lot of stuff one time and throw it in the trash. And that's not a sustainable practice. And then you have limited natural resources. I don't even know how you make plastic. Don't ask me. I just know a lot of water (laughs) goes into it. Um, But I look at the things that we put metals into and... We need them for so many important things, as you know, like really critical things that civilization definitely needs. And then we go off and waste them in things that will just get thrown away. And I get back to my, you know, the thing I hate more than anything else on the planet, the fidget spinner and the 200 million units that are apparently in circulation doing nobody any discernible good or value and will just end up in a trash can. And that is, you know, that's plastic waste that ends up all over the planet. And it's a poor use of metals or any, whatever else goes into them. Um, and that's just trying to educate a younger population about wise choice of, of land, of, you know, if it's water, whatever it is we're evaluating, could we try to make some smarter choices, please? Um, so that that's just going to have a more, po- it's just a positive effect. And I think that we really have to be more critical about some of the decisions that we're making and, um, you know, your gen- it's just the next generation and and what can they do to be a little bit smarter and a little bit more responsible than the last well, one?
0: I, I like that. And, you know, there on um, our resources. We're all about making wise, smart decisions and, and thinking ahead. So with that, Jody Vanna, thank you again for being on the Our Resources podcast. It's, it's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Karen. I really enjoyed it.